0: David Burns is considered one of the founders of cognitive behavioral therapy and is a psychiatrist and professor at the Stanford School of Medicine. He is the author of the books Feeling Good and Feeling Great. This is David Burns. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tech. All right. I'm here with David Burns. Uh, thank you for joining me today.
1: Well, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yes, well, I'm
0: excited to talk to you because you're considered one of the uh, the forefathers of of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And just to sort of lay the groundwork for this discussion we're going to have here, um, it might be useful to have like some kind of definition of of that. It seems like it's about your thoughts and moods, but what does that mean? Yeah, well,
1: yeah, right. I'm, uh, uh, yeah, the cognitive therapy. i meant something kind of a new version of cognitive therapy, by by the way, from from the original Feeling Good book. But the idea behind cognitive therapy goes back a couple thousand years, maybe even more, but to the Greek philosopher Epictetus, who made a revolutionary statement that uh, is, is actually valid, but it's so basic that most people can't comprehend it, and is that we're, human beings are disturbed not by things, but by the views we take of them. That that was his statement in his book, uh, En Car- Caridion, or something like that, that he published uh, almost 2,000 years ago. And what it means is that we create our own emotional reality at every moment of every day. We, we think, oh, I'm upset because my boyfriend rejected me, or my girlfriend rejected me, or wh- whatever it is, or... Uh, you know, I'm I'm depressed because I'm not smart enough, I'm not successful enough. Or, uh, you know, I was talking to a woman last night who said I'm a depressed and guilty. I'm a bad mother because I sometimes get ir- irritable and, and uh, snap at my at my kids. And and that it's these thoughts that create a hundred percent of depression and anxiety and even even anger. Uh, it's not what's happening to us. And it's it's true even at this moment, uh, the people listening to this podcast will, everyone's getting exactly the same words from David and exactly the same words from Duncan, but people will have a wide variety of emotional reactions depending on your thoughts. And if you're thinking something like, uh, well, I don't, I don't know this idea that, thoughts create our moods and the here and now that sounds like a lot of bs Burks must be a i know he's taught at harvard and he's teaching at stanford but he sounds like a an ass you know <laughs> so they're thinking feeling annoyed or skeptical right. uh, and then other people may be saying wow he's saying he's got new high-speed treatment for depression by Changing the way you 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 think, and that that might be really helpful to me. I've been struggling with depression for years or decades, so that per- person might be feeling really happy and excited,
0: yeah.
1: and and so that that that's the the first the first idea, and then the second idea and, and idea came along in the 20th century. Uh, the you know, the idea that our thoughts create our moods, and people have been talking about you know for hundreds and hundreds of years. But the second thing came along from the work of Albert Ellis in New York, Karen Horney, an early psychoanalyst who who, uh, was active in the early 1900s, in the mid 1900s. And and then Aaron Beck, who I kind of uh, got my start with at University of Pennsylvania Medical School, was the idea that the thoughts that upset you, the thoughts that caused depression and anxiety, are cons. They're distorted. They're not realistic. Mm-hmm. And in my first book, Feeling Good: The New Mood Therapy, I published the ten so-called cognitive distortions, which is overly fancy language. But a cognition is just a thought. And then uh, there's these thinking errors that cause depression, like all-or-nothing thinking. Uh, like the like the mother I was talking to last night is into all-or-nothing thinking because. You know, I, I got mad and you know shouted at my kids. I'm a bad mother. That's all all or nothing thinking, and and then uh, another one. And and it's a distortion because nothing in the universe is black or white. Uh, it, it's it's not a hundred percent or zero percent. This, this podcast is is unlikely to be the the greatest podcast in human history (laughs) and it's not going to be the the worst piece of crap in human history it'll be somewhere somewhere in between and we're always some somewhere in between and then there's overgeneralization taking a negative event and seeing it as a never-ending pattern of defeat a young uh, professional woman broke up with her boyfriend of two years he broke up with with her uh and and then she was feeling devastated because she told herself, Dr. Burns, does this mean I'm unlovable? Hmm. And, that, and so she, she's generalizing from this specific event. Well, we all break up with people along the way yeah. uh, when we're trying to find the person to, to settle down with. But she's, she, she's generalizing to herself. She thinks she has a self that's unlovable. And then she's generalizing to the future i'll, I'll be alone forever instead yeah. of focusing on what really went on the specific thing that went on was just that she some has, has kind of has a way of relating to people for the most part she's an extremely popular and terrific young woman uh, she's a powerhouse she's a, a, a professional with a fabulous career she's funny she's warm she's attractive she's really neat but. What really went on? She sometimes gets overly enthusiastic, and will say to to like a friend, what, let, "Let's go to Vancouver for spring break. What what do you think about it? There's going to be a great rock concert there, and the so so and so is going to perform." and and then the other person, will, she'll say, what, what, what do you think? Doesn't that sound like fun? And then the other person will say, oh, yeah, that, that sounds cool. And then she takes that as, as, a, as that they really want to do it. So she'll start making hotel reservations. Um, and then at the last minute, she discovers the other person isn't that hot on going to Vancouver and it causes a, a conflict. And that's what happened with her, with her boyfriend. And that was a fairly easy problem to, to correct. Yeah. Uh, but on the specific level, you can't get depressed. It's impossible to be depressed without overgeneralization, generalizing to yourself. All of depression is about thinking you have this self that, that, isn't, that isn't good enough. And then you've got mental filtering and discounting the positive and mind reading and fortune telling and should statements and self-blame and emotional reasoning. I feel like a loser, so I must be a loser. Uh, I feel hopeless, so I must be hopeless. Uh, And so that's principle number two, depression and anxiety are the world's oldest cons. And then the third idea is that, and this was also radical, uh, is that the very moment you stop believing the distorted thoughts that are causing your angst in that very instant, you'll, you'll recover, your emotions will change. Mm -hmm. And so that was what I wrote about in my first book, Feeling Good, the new mood therapy that was published in 1980. And when I wrote it, uh, because I was just excited because I wanted to share these ideas with people because they were considered pretty revolutionary at the time. And most people thought it was quackery there. And there were only about 15 of us cognitive therapists in the world at, at that time. Wow. And then since Feeling Good came out, it cognitive therapy has grown in popularity. And now it's the most popular form of psychotherapy in the world and the most extensively researched form of psychotherapy in the world. It's considered the gold standard for the treatment of depression. Yeah. But then I moved to Stanford Medical School. We moved back home to California in the mid-1990s. And then since I've been at Stanford, I've developed kind of a new twist, uh, that we call team CBT or team cognitive therapy, which is like cognitive therapy on steroids and brought in, uh, new dimensions, new, new techniques. And now are seeing what I dreamed about when I was a young man. Uh, I, I I always wondered when I was doing my psychiatric residency and we treated people, we gave them antidepressants and just encouraged them to talk. And that was all the treatment amounted to. And I almost never saw people recover. And they would go on for months and months without changes. And no one was measuring anything. To, and it was just this vague thing. And a lot of psychotherapy and psychiatry is still that kind of ineffective, vague vague thing. But I wondered, could you ever get really good at psychotherapy? Like an NBA player, basketball like, uh, you know? Curry from the the Golden State Warriors. He's one of the greatest (laughs) shooters in human history. And he has shot thousands of times. And each time he shoots, he can see if it goes through the hoop or not. Right. Ever since he's probably five years old, he's been doing that. And that shapes his brain. But therapists don't measure. So they just keep doing the same dumb thing over and over again, thinking they're helping people when in most cases they're not. And so we now measure at the start and end of every session with every patient how are you feeling right now? How depressed, how suicidal, how angry, how anxious. And then at the end of the session, so I can see instantly within a session how effective or ineffective I was. Yeah. And that has revolutionized the treatment. And now we're seeing, I usually see people uh, for two hour sessions and at least 90% of the time now, I see a complete recovery in one session and then I'm done with the patient. And that's what I dreamed about yeah. when, when I was young, would such a thing be, be, be possible to develop a science of psychotherapy? So that's the overview of Micra, and then the new book that you can see in the background Although feeling if it's great. a podcast, you can't yeah. yeah, see it, but it's, you know, feeling great came out in September and that's kind of the first major sequel to my first book, feeling good. And that has all these new techniques, mind boggling techniques to my way of thinking uh, that uh, are, are just really revolutionizing what's possible for people with depression and anxiety in terms of speed and degree of recovery.
0: And, and let me ask you, because you, you said in the beginning where people treated it as quackery and I myself, if I, I had known that this was so extensively studied and, and well-regarded and respected and someone was saying, oh, we can have someone's mood change around within two hours, I would blow it off myself. Right, but right. Yeah, you, you, exactly. You, it sounds like quackery. It does. But um, for people who are curious about this, for if they want to find a therapist that's doing team CBT, did, do you guys have like a, a network
1: or? Um... They, they do. I work alone, you know, but, but my students uh, with my blessing have formed a feeling good institute in Mountain View, California. And, and they're now forming, uh, you know, institutes uh, around the U.S. and around the world really. And they have a pretty extensive referral referral network but my website feelinggood.com has free resources uh like my own feeling good podcast we're going to have our four millionth uh, download month after next there you go and it's it's for therapists and for the general public to to learn how to use these techniques yourself and my books like feeling feeling good even the one that came out in 1980 uh, there's been research on it it's 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 still uh, if if you if you read that book and you're depressed there's a high likelihood you'll be dramatically improved or recovered in 4 weeks even without any human therapist without any any medications and i've got a free depression class uh, kind of for for people to take uh, on the website uh, I've got a free anxiety uh, class because uh, uh, a lot of people just don't have have the money and a lot of therapists are just so darn expensive and ineffective. And, and so I'm, I'm and, and then the new free feeling good app that I'm, I'm creating too sure. uh, uh, is, is another attempt to kind of put these things in the hands of people, these these tools. And therapists are, 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 are great, but I think there's an awful lot one can do even with, without a, a human therapist.
0: And on that note, then, it seems like there's a lot of people who are prescribed drugs for uh, depression and anxiety, yeah. like drugs like Xanax, which yeah. uh, mm-hmm. I, I know people have taken it just recreationally and it turns you into a zombie. Like, do, do you think it is... Are, are there any cases where these drugs are necessary or do you think it's, irresponsible? Well, I'll give you my
1: take on it because I started out doing uh, research on brain chemistry after during my fellowship, part of my residency training in psychiatry on this idea that there's some chemical imbalance in the brain and you have to take antidepressants to correct that. And I won awards uh, for my research on neurochemistry, but, uh, I, uh, I never found any evidence supporting the chemical imbalance theory, uh, the idea, oh, there's this happy chemical serotonin, and you don't have enough of it, and that's why you're depressed. We flooded the brains in our research unit of depressed patients uh, with uh, serotonin, raised their uh, serotonin levels probably 100 times in the brain from normal. It had no effect on their mood whatsoever. It it was just a spurious theory that somebody made up and it's the basis of a 1000000000 dollar industry. You know, all the drug companies, they make serotonin stimulating drugs of various kinds and they call them antidepressants and they market them heavily. But a critical review of that research uh, indicates, and, and some listeners will hate hearing this, but uh, my own research, uh, published research and, and other people, uh, uh, David Antonuccio and Reno, or Irving Hirsch at the, at the Harvard Placebo Institute have indicated that the drugs called antidepressants actually are not antidepressants. They're just chemicals with side effects. And if you l- look at the uh, data critically, uh, you'll see they really do not outperform pl- placebos. Wow. And so I no longer uh, use them. I haven't prescribed an antidepressant in 25 years. Now, prior to that time, I was still kind of a believer because that's the way I was trained as a psychiatrist. Right. And I've prescribed them on 13,000 occasions, not because I recommended them, but because patients asked for them. And I thought, well, if I don't prescribe it, I might get sued or something.
0: Yeah.
1: But uh, I, I no longer uh, consider them to be necessary or, or desirable in the treatment of depression now you mentioned xanax that's not an antidepressant that's an anti-anxiety agent and it and it is kind of like a a magic bullet for for anxiety and, and if you're anxious and having trouble getting to sleep and you take the smallest dose quarter milligram xanax and you chew it and swallow it with water that it'll go right into your blood quickly you'll fall asleep in 20 minutes you'll sleep like a baby and you'll wake up feeling great with no side effects you'll say oh wow this this is better than french fries <laughs> but, the, but but the problem is uh, if you take it for more than uh, two or three days you'll start getting hooked on it you yeah. And, and then when you try to withdraw from it you'll have intense anxiety and intense insomnia the very reason you started taking it and then you and your doctor will wrongly conclude you you need it and and, and it will become an addiction and I had a colleague in Canada a research psychologist uh, Dr. Henny Westra uh, a really bright person a a great researcher and also a great clinician. And she reviewed the world literature on the use of these benzodiazepines like Valium and Xanax and Librium and Ativan and all the rest of them and concluded that uh, treatment with cognitive therapy greatly outperforms treatment with benzodiazepines Mm -hmm. and that benzodiazepines after a few days they're not effective and they actually make it impossible to recover from any anxiety disorder Mm -hmm. and and so i will not prescribe them uh, for anything for anything but they're wonderful i took xanax myself for about a month when it first came out because when when drugs first come out the companies make claims that later on are shown to be not true yeah but it was said, "Oh, this is not addictive, and this is great for whatever ails you." And I would take it at, at night, and you know, I thought, "Oh, this is great," and then I realized it was becoming addictive. And I said, I, I, "I'm going to stop taking this," and it took three weeks to uh, to withdraw from it. Uh, no. So I, I I have so many power. I just did a lecture on drug-free, a free le- lecture. I might even post it on my website, uh, feelinggood.com. It was an hour lecture and a 30-minute q a that uh, the, the people who published my book feeling great uh set up this free lecture for the for the general public and i showed cases of extreme anxiety who people who recovered really really rapidly with, without medications at all and and so when someone have depression or anxiety my goal is to have that person recover really fast. The, the techniques for depression, the techniques for anxiety, there's a little overlap but, and, and some important differences. But uh, I, I, uh, I, I, I just turned away from biological psychiatry, although I was trained in it and I believed in it because that's what I was told and I want to be a good student. But uh, sometimes medications are life-saving. I've never been opposed to medications. I've only been opposed to medications that don't work. Fair enough. And, and
0: one of the things that's strange uh, in, in this era that we're living in is, and you talk about this in, in your book, um, Feeling Good, where a relying uh, on other people's perception of you to, to form your own sense of self-worth and yet, we're living in an era of social media where it's very easy to get addicted to the likes and the follows, et cetera. Your, con- your social media, by definition, your life is media. You're always on view. Um, how do people? How how do you think people should engage with social media, or like its anxiety-producing effects?
1: Well, I don't give advice on social media or or much of anything actually, but you're right that, uh, the approval addiction is one of the self-defeating beliefs uh, that trigger depression and anxiety. I have a list of 23 self-defeating beliefs. And if you post show notes or something, I'd be glad to send you a copy of it and people can look through this list it's just a one-page thing with brief definitions and there are certain uh, common beliefs that people have that set us up for depression and anxiety there's the you know approval addiction I need everyone's approval to be happy and worthwhile and then there's a love addiction I I, I must be loved to feel happy and and, and worthwhile and then there's uh, perfectionism perceived perfectionism. People won't love and accept me if they see that I'm flawed or vulnerable. I have to impress people to, to be loved or liked or respected. And then there's the achievement addiction, basing your self-esteem on your achievements and, and accomplishments, and, and a lot of these other self-defeating beliefs. And they're like two-edged swords because On the one hand they can they can motivate us the you know i used to be very perfectionistic and and uh, achievement uh, addiction and it it drove me in my research because i would say this research study this has got to be the greatest study in the world on on this this topic and uh and then if, if it looked like the data was coming out right i would get ecstatic oh this is fantastic and then if the data was coming out bad i i would crash and you know it was like being on on a roller coaster and the same in my clinical work i used to tell myself that i'm going to cure every patient whether they like it or not I'd have these patients with really severe problems, like uh, borderline personality disorder, and they'd say, "Doctor Burns, you know, you're not helping me," and it, it it would threaten threaten my. My sense of self-esteem because i i i can't i can't fail and, and that would kind of lead to a power struggle and i try to prove that the patient was wrong and <laughs> yeah. i was helping them or i could help them and then over time i finally got i got over that and i can remember the day a patient said dr burns you're you're not you're you're not really helping me and feeling like I'm, I'm maybe i'm a hopeless case and i said you know you're you're, you're right <laughs> it's, it's it's heartbreaking to me yeah. b- uh, because i haven't been helpful to you and and uh and i'm not even connecting with you in a really warm and, and empathic way and i can imagine how angry and hopeless and disappointed you feel I think we're on the same page. Let's talk about it. I want to hear what you have to say. And then suddenly the heavens opened up. The patient started trusting me, and, all, and then suddenly began to to re- recover. But the, these these traps, these these self-defeating beliefs, uh, they they're always rewarding us. Like if you have that approval addiction, you you may get very good at getting people's approval. And then, each time you get some approval, you, you get kind of, kind, of, kind of euphoric, so you get addicted to, to, these, to these beliefs. So part of what I do in, in my books, like Feeling Good, the Feeling Good Handbook, Feeling Great, is show people how to, how to modify these, these beliefs so you can keep the healthy stuff there's nothing wrong with wanting to do a great job or loving achievement and trying to do the finest job you you can do, but getting rid of the downside, right. the the kind of needy aspect. I, I must must have achievement to be worthwhile. Well, that's just so nonsensical. I uh, uh, we we adopted a, a cat at the Humane Society. Um, it was a six-year-old cat who whose owner had died and my wife saw her and fell in love with the picture and we went and we brought her home and we we just love her and uh you know she glommed onto my wife i'm kind of like a grade b option for her (laughs) (laughs) but uh, she's getting more attached to me now and uh, uh i'll start petting her and she she rolls over on her back She spreads her hands and her legs like like this, Mm -hmm. and I start petting her tummy and she just starts purring like like crazy and and that's such a joyous experience and uh, she she's not perfect she she's not a show cat. Uh, She she, uh, and 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 i'm i'm kind of getting old and i'm kind of noticing all of all of my defects. I'm not special, she's not special, but just hang, hanging out is really special. And, and the idea is to let, let go of these rules that we have, how we have to be, and and, and to, to, to accept yourself uh, with, with, with all of your flaws. And that's really what enlightenment is. That's what the Buddha was talking about 2,500 years ago. And Buddhists hate it when I talk like this, because they think I don't have any right to talk about Buddhism, because I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not in anything. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's really, that's where I'm trying to bring people in therapy is not just to get rid of the depression and anxiety, but to, to go into a state of what you would call enlightenment. But uh, you can't be enlightened all, all the time. Uh, I say you're only entitled to five happy days per week and two miserable days because once you've recovered, those negative thoughts will come back. But now you'll have the tool that you can blow them away whenever they come back. Mm. Uh, but that that that's kind of kind of how it works. And and if you're you know on the on the internet. Uh, you know, I, I don't have much to, to, you know, I just don't have any expertise there. Just right. the rules that govern human existence are the same before and after the the internet. Uh, for, for me, the internet has been a blessing, a little bit of a curse, but a blessing because uh, now in my teaching, for example, it's all, all virtual because of COVID. Right. And so my Stanford group, I used to do it live at Stanford. Now I do it virtually. And all kinds of students that I loved and taught who moved away now have come back. Oh, that's cool. And they're in the Tuesday group, the training group again. And so I think the the internet can do fantastic things for us. But, and also, you know, it connects me with a lot of, the podcast fans and they email me and, right. and I can make personal connections with people all over the world, but it's also a curse because I'm over 10,000 emails behind right now. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm sure yeah. almost everyone has a similar problem. You you can't keep up.
0: Well, and that's one of the things I wanted to ask you when you talk about Buddhism is this, and, and you mentioned this early on when we were talking is this concept of self, like a lot yeah. of people, are able to apply the advice and the techniques you're talking about when they see it in others when they see yes, someone, right. who they know yeah. is great and is having a bad yeah. day and catastrophizing they say well yeah hang on but when it comes yeah. to ourselves this ego um yeah. how, how how important is it and are there any techniques to sort of reduce our our ego intensity
1: yeah absolutely and and that's what the new uh, team cbt is is about that that resistance that we have we see others distortions uh, and self-criticisms as being kind of unproductive but when it comes to your own self-criticisms there's a part of of you that doesn't want to let let go for example, the woman I was working with last night s- said, "I, you know, I, I realize I beat up on myself, and I say I'm a bad mother, and I feel incredibly guilty. I shouldn't have shouted at my kids, and and, uh, and I know I shouldn't be beating up on myself, but p- partly, uh, you know, I I don't want to let go of that of that self abuse, and and that's a, a motivational dimension." And, and that's what all my work in the last 20 years have been is that it's not only these distorted thoughts that are important, but, but your motivation. And when people are kind of perfectionistic, you, you t- almost take a, a pride in, in beating up on, on yourself and, yes. and, and, and that type of thing. And so what we do, I, I, I've developed about 20 new techniques to reduce re- resistance, but they're paradoxical techniques because I, I actually try to sell the person on what's awesome about their self-criticisms. Uh, and, and, and before I try to change the self-criticisms, like last night, uh, the, I, I said to this woman, well, let, maybe we shouldn't try to get rid of all, all of your self-criticisms of, you know, for shouting it at, at your kids. Let, what does it show about you that's positive and awesome, and what are some some beautiful things that it shows about you and what are some benefits of uh, beating up on yourself like this all all the time and and i just jotted them down on this piece of paper yeah uh uh, i wasn't treating her we were just she was in a beta group for the app and and we were just getting feedback you know what did you like and in the part that you tested this week but she came up with this this list of what, what is her guilt and her self-critical thoughts like telling herself i'm a bad parent and uh, because i get impatient and yell and this is all all my fault and uh, and uh, first it 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 shows that uh that and she and i came up with this list together but so shows that she has high standards uh and uh and and that she 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 really cares about things uh, and 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 it and it shows that she's aware of her faults and honest about her faults and that her faults matter to her and and it shows that she said it shows I care about how my children turn out and and I don't want to be having a bad impact on on my kids and 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 my guilt shows my love for my children uh, and 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 beating beating up on myself, and it drives me to find ways ways of doing better and 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 re- reducing this uh, aggression problem I've I've had my entire life, getting mad and flying off the handle, not probably not just at her, her kids, and and uh, the, hanging on to this this guilt and self criticism shows my persistence and how i'm determined to 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 improve and to find a solution to the problem and it shows that i want to to be a model of a real mother uh, and 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 and, sh- and and that i have flaws and, and for the, the kids to see that they'll have flaws too, and that they can still love me, and I can still love them, and I can say, I feel so bad, I apologize when I, you know, kind of fly off the handle. Sometimes I need a little more support from you kids, because I'm a single mom, and I'm overwhelmed uh, sometimes, and her her guilt uh, shows that she's a very moral person, has a moral compass, and we came up with other benefits, you see, the positives of what she thought was a bad thing like she was trying to get rid of her guilt. See, everyone who's depressed thinks it's bad, so they're supposed to get rid of it, and this makes you feel ashamed and intensifies the depression. Then I said, well, gosh, given this list, maybe we shouldn't be working on this uh, uh, because these are beautiful and awesome things about you, and these are real, and they're powerful, and they're true. So maybe that self-criticism isn't something that, that we should be should be working on. Now that's the opposite of what a normal shrink would do. See shrinks of all persuasions are taught to help and rescue. And this is the exact opposite siding with her subconscious resistance in a flattering and, and genuine way. And then she she, what typically happens the basis oh yeah but but no i really want to get rid of this please help me if you've got the tools and yeah. now instead of me trying to sell her she's trying to sell me something and that's the whole secret of the new team cbt and 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 i said well well, how how guilty have you been feeling lately and she said 70 75 and i said well you know maybe we could just dial it down a little bit uh you know how how the guilt is, is a good thing. Um, but how, how much would you like on a zero to a hundred if you had a magic dial and she says, Oh, I think 25% would, w- w- would, be plenty. And then I said, well, great, great. Uh, so now how, how, how are you going to deal with this thought that you're a ba- you're a bad mother? And she said, well, m- maybe I can just tell myself that I'm a single mother and uh, uh, it, my life can be pretty overwhelming and hard for me sometimes. And, and while I, I do sometimes fly off the handle, I, I, have, uh, I do tons of loving things for my kids too. And, and even when I fly off the handle, we talk it over and bring, brings us uh, closer closer together. And she suddenly, like had like wisdom
0: yeah.
1: and just blew, blew her, her negativity out of the water and just, just felt immediate relief. And, and that took like about 10 minutes Yeah,
0: And and that's one of the the things I was thinking about when when you were describing that is this is uh, clearly a very successful treatment for depression and anxiety. What about things that are more ingrained, like personality disorders, and and especially I'm talking about like narcissism, psych, uh, psychopathy, uh, pedophilia, people who are malicious. Like, is there any way to get them to reexamine beliefs um, and, and cure themselves?
1: Well, um, the, I only, uh, work with people who ask me for help with something, hmm. you know, I'm not trying to change, change the world. And, and there are some things I'm really good at and some things that I, I would not know how to good to, to, to deal with. Like, I, I think things like sexual addictions, like pedophilia, uh, are, are very, very uh, cha- challenging because they're intensely addictive and generally the person doesn't want to give up something that, that is an addiction. And I have tools for habits and addictions, but I would say that uh, it, 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 that's a lot tougher road than working with depression and anxiety. And sometimes depression and anxiety for certain people can, can be very still very challenging to treat. But uh, uh, on my website, there, there's tons of free resources and, and there are new tools for dealing with any kind of habit and addiction. There were two chapters that I had to take out of my new book because it was so long. I had to remove nine chapters even, and it's still a pretty big book, but to, to get it shorter, but I've put them on my website. And if any listeners are struggling with the binge eating or a sexual addiction, or any kind of habit or addiction, and you're interested in, in getting over that and, and changing your life, you can go to the homepage of feelinggood.com and go to the bottom of the homepage. And then it, it says, if you like these two, which says you get one unpublished chapter from David's new book, but actually you get two chapters on, on habits and addictions, but they're all focused on, on motivation and, and rather than trying to persuade the person to change, I, I say, like, let, let, let's say you're, you're overeating. Well, I, I use a technique called the triple paradox. And, and, and I would have the patient in three, three columns. In the first column, what are some of the benefits to you in binge eating? And, and again, mm-hmm. most therapists don't go down that route, but the, the patient can come up with at least 10 or a dozen wonderful things about binge eating because it's fun to pig out on your favorite food and it can be a comfort when you're bored or or feeling down and on and on and then in the middle column once we've done that i say now what are some of the disadvantages of diet and exercise if you want to lose weight and you know and then we'll list all of the horrible things about dieting and exercise and then uh in, in in the final column which is the triple paradox it's uh what does your habit or addiction show about you that's positive and awesome? And again, this is not what they're used to. Like your binge eating shows that, well, you wanna give yourself pleasure and uh, and it makes you happy. And the Dalai Lama says that, that uh, happiness is the purpose of life so when you binge eat, you're doing a profoundly spiritual thing. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you're showing love for yourself and life is short and rude and, and, and why not enjoy it? And so we come up with this list of all the reasons to keep binge eating. And then I say to the patient, well, gosh, uh, maybe uh, I, I don't see why you'd want to want change, given all these positives. And this is the first honest approach to addictions, because that's why the person has, has, has the addiction, has the habit, the overeating habit. Mm-hmm. And, and then oddly enough, when I show them how great it is, uh, and, and I don't try to help them, then I would say at least 90% of the time they say, oh yes, but please, Dr. Burns, I really wanna give, give, give this up. And, and then I say, okay, now that's fine. Do, do, you, do you need my help with that? Uh, and they say, "No, I think I know. Uh, you know, I have a weight loss thing. I, I, I'm going to do." And then they they go out and do it. It's it's really interesting. It's focusing on the motivational component, which is big in depression and anxiety. But it's a total issue in habits and addictions, and an almost total issue when you're working with relationship problems too, because people also get addicted to blame and arguing and being angry and, 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 being in conflict with people. So I would say addictions and relationship problems are generally slower than uh, treatment of depression and anxiety, because those, that resistance to change the motivation to continue can sometimes be overwhelmingly powerful.
0: I see. And, and one of the things I, I wanted to ask there, um, when we were talking about um, earlier on certain things, like a lot of therapy not being effective at all. Um, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on even like the concept of personality disorders. Oh, well, like- personality
1: disorders. Well, I developed team because of personality disorders. Yeah. You know, uh, like uh, I, in the early days of my practice, you you see i went to beck's weekly seminar cognitive therapy was brand new i decided to leave my tenure track position at the medical school and open my own private practice and Beck, at the same time opened his center for cognitive therapy we were both in the same building the gerard bank building across the street from the university of pennsylvania and he started referring patients to, to me and i thought oh that's great he must think I'm a, I'm a great therapist and almost all the patients that he referred had a severe borderline personality disorder which is considered just about the toughest personality disorder although you know narcissism can be challenging and uh, and, and so forth and but i was very flattered and, and uh and and but i realized that conventional cognitive therapy sometimes wasn't enough for these patients. So they needed more empathy and more focus on motivational issues. And that's how the new team therapy evolved, both from my research on the data I was collecting in my private practice and also my my observations. Uh, And so team therapy is specifically designed for patients with personality disorders. but what I didn't know at the time, I I later found out that he wasn't referring all these patients because he thought I was a great therapist, but because they didn't want them in the center for cognitive therapy, because they're so uh, challenging to treat and uh, kind of stressful for, for the therapist. But, but yes, but I don't treat anything in the DSM. Okay. Uh, uh, I only treat human beings, not labels. Right? You see, and, and a personality disorder, oh, you have narcissistic personality disorder. You have uh, you know, histrionic personality disorder. Well, what, what, what does that, that mean, really? And all I treat people with is, is what they want help with. Mm-hmm. And, and generally, the patients that I've had with borderline personality disorder, what they want help with is their depression. And what my research showed is, is that if those patients decide to work, to work with me, they will recover from depression at about the same speed as patients without borderline personality disorder. And I published that finding in the top psychology research journal, the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology in the mid 1990s. But working with uh, those kinds of patients sometimes does require a higher degree of, of therapist skill because they'll be they'll be opposed to doing psychotherapy homework typically uh, they'll they'll be prone to creating conflicts with with, with a therapist and, and so forth and it's the same with like a, a narcissistic patient i kind of love narcissists because I myself am narcissistic. It's one of my many shortcomings and what I've been working on for a long time. And it, uh, sometimes I have to pay a price for my mar- narcissism. My, my wife points it out all the time, so she helps me become, a, become aware of, of, of that but I, I really like narcissistic patients and so I, I give them a lot of stroking and compliments and so they really like working with me because they sense that i like them but i'm not treating their narcissism i'm treating what they want help with and and that might be a, a, a problematic marriage or, or or what whatever um so i'm not a kind of on on a crusade to change people based on some diagnosis and let's say a patient has obsessive compulsive disorder and they're washing their hands 50 times a day because of the fear of germs well that's something that can in my experience be easily treated treated in fact i i I had a podcast on that exact problem and featured a woman that i cured really you know cured is a fair thing to say in in, at my tuesday training group in front of the in front of the, the the class and it really kind of permanently ended her 25 years with with ocd and cleaning rituals it was very dramatic uh, evening uh, because once she decided that she really wanted you know to change and i said well then you're going to have to confront your worst fear now and uh, you know your yourself is going to die are you ready she said yes so i took the seminar group out and we went into the ladies bathroom like 30 students, and I said, you have to start touching this toilet seat with your hands. And she said, oh, no, do I have to do that? I said, yes, you must do that. And she said, well, you do it first. So I started touching it, and then she got into it, and she started touching it, and then she pulled the toilet seat up and started touching the inner in inner bowl, and the students were, were saying, oh, this is awful, you know, take the thing. She said her anxiety went up to 200%. And then I said, well, we're not done yet. And I were, she was afraid of do- touching uh, doorknobs more than anything else and said, we'll go out to the front of the building. We'll touch all these doorknobs along the way. Uh, That's freaking her, her out. And we finally went to the front door. That was her greatest fear. And she had to touch the, the glass and the door handles, all these people going in and out of the building. And then we went outside and found this empty trash barrel that had about a millimeter of grime inside of it. And I said, now you got to put your hands in here. Oh. And, and she said, I'll vomit. I said, well, that's even better. Put them in there and vomit all over them. And, and then she said, oh, I can't. I said, yes, you can. And you must do that now. She says, well, I'd like to see you do it. So I put my hands in and rubbed my face. And then she put her hands in. And one of my students had his, his iPhone and took a video, a 30-second video of it. And she did it and then everyone started cheering and we back went up to the seminar room and they said, how are you feeling now? And, and she started crying and says, Dr. Burns, I, I'm cured. I, I, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not afraid of dirt and germs anymore. And then she drove all the way home two hours from Stanford uh, without washing her hands. And now she's, she's been great ever since. But my make long story short, she asked me for help. Yeah. But if I have another patient with a, a germ phobia uh, and they don't want help, I'll say, well, no problem. God bless you. You've probably got the cleanest hands in, in Los Altos. <laughs> and Is there anything you do want help with? Yeah. And that was a huge turning point in my career when I made the decision not to try to save people, but to help people with what they wanted help with.
0: I see. And we're almost at an hour here. I know you're a busy guy. The, the last thing I wanted to ask you is, neuroscience is making huge advances. Uh, what do you see the future of therapy being?
1: Well, um, I think the therapy's got a pretty, pretty strong uh, future. A neuroscientist wrote one of the chapters in my book, Feeling Great, um, Dr. Professor Mark Noble from uh, University of Rochester, and he started out, I think he's the father of stem cell uh, research, and now he's working in the area of uh, neurochemistry. And he he said that if you had to design a therapy based on how the human brain works and to cause rapid changes, it would be team CBT. And he, he argued that when we do externalization of voices and have the patients focus on one moment when they're upset, what were your negative thoughts? And then we role play and do role reversals and crush those thoughts. He says, that's actually changing circuits in, in, in the human brain. And he said, it's like selective neurosurgery. We activate the exact circuits that cause this patient's depression. And then we change those, those circuits and uh but i think there will be you know great advances eventually in uh you know how the brain works uh, amazing discoveries will be made i'm I'm very excited by that but i have a feeling that the uh, skillful psychotherapy which is not like most psychotherapy is not skillful but skillful psychotherapy is still the the fastest and most powerful way to change the human brain there
0: you go. Uh, David, I'm, I'm very grateful that you took the time to talk to me. Um, and I think this was really positive for a lot of people. Uh, people can get your book feeling good, feeling great. Um, you got your website feeling is, is there anything else you want to get out there No, with-
1: that's about it. Just thanks. Thanks so much. And I hope you got some nice responses to the show and it's just an honor to, uh, to, to meet you and to, to exchange ideas with you. I just, I, I can't, can't thank you enough and, you know, c- keep in touch. Absolutely. All right, David, take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you to David
0: Burns. And thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Yammy. See you next time.